Okay, well, here we are. Let me talk about the pandemic just a second as it affects Alaska and may affect Cliffside. Again, we have a completely non-essential auditorium here, not to say that no one is non-essential, but non-essential as we defined it more recently. Um, Alaska is starting to show signs of difficulty. We had a significant increase in per population increase in cases in the last five days. So if that uh, begins to put us into a crisis situation, we may have to uh, take measures. In any event, watch for Dave. He'll put it on the Internet. Okay, let's see. Where am I here? Mask. That affects my hair. My, My hair last week was disastrous. I usually have it beautifully done, but that didn't turn out that way last week. So I apologize for the lack of hair and the disorder that it has. So here we go. (coughs) Through the throat. April the 12th, 2020, lecture discussion number 98 on the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, Ecclesiastes. And you might have expected that I would change that title you might have thought that uh, for today the sermon would be special first fruits lecture, as has been the case for at least uh, 22 years or more. I did a pre-cliffside period. I do have that. Uh, but though the lecture will include first fruits um, and other things, this is actually the feast day of Bikiram. It actually is. It's the first day. That is subsequent. Let me read this carefully. It's the first day that is subsequent to the weekly Sabbath that follows Passover and unleavened bread. That's Leviticus 23, 4 through 14. So as you know, we had a Sunday, a Monday, a Tuesday, a Wednesday, a Thursday. Oops. I'll make a Thursday. That's what I'll do and that'll work out. A Thursday, a Friday, a Saturday, and another Sunday. Those are eight days, but the Passover week was Sunday through Saturday. Wednesday was the Passover. I have three days of unleavened bread, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Actually, all of the week is unleavened bread traditionally, but I have the the sign of Jonah right here. And then the Saturday... The Saturday, I'm sorry, the, the Saturday is the weekly Sabbath, so uh, the day after the weekly Sabbath in the week of Passover, that is Bikirum. Bikirum, or uh, the feast day of first fruits. So today actually is, now I can see there's a bunch of redundancies in what I just said, but hopefully you got, you got the point. Yea, a point already. Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits interconnected, as is the weekly Sabbath in the week of Passover. All of those are interconnected. And once Passover has been determined, uh, and just to help you out there, it's usually, or it is, the 15th day of the Hebrew month of Nisan. And again, you're going to have to think of a calendar as 360 days whenever you're reckoning when the next Passover will be, as opposed to 365 and a quarter, Hebrew versus Gregorian. Um, and Passover is typically, typically uh, to begin on the night of the full moon, which occurs after the northern vernal equinox. 
That's how they do it. And after Passover, again, unleavened bread, then the weekly Sabbath, then after that one, the first day is first fruits. And as I pointed out last Sunday, this week, first fruits corresponds exactly with Easter this year, Ishtar, which is not consistently true. For example, 15% of the time, Passover and Ishtar, Easter, are separated by as much as a month. So this week, it was absolutely perfect. We got Bikiram. Let me erase that and put first fruits on there, because most people won't. This week, we actually have Ishtar lining up with first fruits. And again, that's not often the case, or not always the case. And you have to think Gregorian calendar, as I said, Hebrew calendar, and the lunar cycle is part of this. And there's no mechanism in the Hebrew to correct the 360-day reckoning, which I find to be a fascinating mathematical issue, because I think that is exactly how it's supposed to be. And they have, as I said, they have no interest in doing it, and they have no device by which to uh, affect the 360 and transfer it into Gregorian. We do, uh, we extrapolate uh, uh, backwards, but they don't. They don't concern themselves with it. Anyway, today is the feast day that the God of creation, John 1, 3, the I am, Exodus 3, 14. So let's throw those on the board really fast. Exodus 3, 14 is the I am. And Christ identifies himself over and over again as the I am. Today is the day, uh, John 1, 3, I forgot that. Where the God of creation, Christ is identified, identifies himself as the God of creation. He is the I am, Exodus 3.14. He is, and he says that in John 8.24. He says, this is the day that I have chosen to resurrect myself, John 2.19. So this is the day that it corresponds to the week in which he was crucified, that he resurrected himself. And that, that is a wonderful thing. And all of, uh, all of you know that already. I just, uh, in case somebody for the first time ever heard me say it. But it's especially uh, the case if you've attended uh, Cliffside, you know that, uh, physically or digitally. Last year, 2019 Gregorian calendar, I placed into the First Fruits in- Inquiry, the exposition, that might be a better word, 1 Corinthians 15. Usually about, I'd say, if, if I had to, had to get it a little bit thinner than that, I would say that it's about 12 through 28 would work. And we'll read that here again this year. And so let's go ahead and do that. 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 28. If you were here last year, you will remember it. If you weren't, No, you won't. It was a year ago. If you weren't here, then it'll hopefully be something that you think about every time there is first fruits or Ishtar. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? The obvious question immediately is who's the some that is saying that there is no resurrection of the dead? Who are these people? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ, notice the if-then 
It's a mathematical formula, isn't it? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then, again, if then, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, granting the premise to the some who say that Christ did not resurrect. If, in fact, the dead do not rise... For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. Once again, I'm trying to point out the pattern, the logic here. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, granting the premise that he did not resurrect, we are of all men the most pitiable. But now Christ is written, risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order. Christ the first fruits. Afterwards, those who are Christ at his coming, then comes the end. Well, that's interesting. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom of God, the Father, I'm sorry, when he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign... He must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet. And when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now, when all things are made subject to him, then the son himself. In other words, that's a triune statement. We'll get to that in a minute. Now, when he, when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him that God may be all in all. Again, that's a triune statement that starts at, uh, but when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted from that. Okay, so there we go. A little bit more emphasis in certain aspects of it this year than last year. In a flawed and incomplete analysis, sorry, let us select out the, uh, the uh, central points. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. Everybody that did geometry in the eighth grade recognizes, again, that mathematical symmetry there. And some will object to this sentence, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. The, the, the if then statement, they would say this. They would say, why didn't? Couldn't Christ have only resurrected himself? Why are the resurrection of mankind and the resurrection of Christ Tied together here. Why not Christ just resurrect himself and allowed mankind and animals to be extinguished? Hopefully you recognize that particular premise, don't you? 
That is the Genesis 3 lie of Satan. But they will say it. Why didn't Christ just resurrect himself? He could. He, he didn't, but he could. How do we know that he will? Is it possible that he could have resurrected just himself? And this statement is not true. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 13 directly refutes this. Uh, this is a nihilism or a nihilistic concept. It declares if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is likewise dead. And if this is so, none have existence. Only a temporal state awaiting to be revealed is cessation. And therefore our faith is empty. We are false witnesses. We are lying about this or we're ignorant. We've been deceived. And, uh, and then therefore of all men that have ever existed or ever walked the earth, we are the most pitiable. That is what the Apostle Paul through the Holy Spirit or the Holy Spirit through Paul said. To repeat, why is it that if none are resurrected... Christ is not resurrected. How does that fit together? Obviously, again, the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, has established the dependency of these two conditions. If you wish to call them resurrections, you can. Christ's resurrection and our resurrection. If we are not resurrected, he is not resurrected. If he is not resurrected, we are not resurrected. There's reciprocity. And in order for the dead to be resurrected, then Christ must resurrect. And the reciprocal is then true. Christ must resurrect for the dead to be resurrected. The reasoning for this is in the triune statement of 1 Corinthians 15, 15. Let me read it again in case you missed it. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. That's a triune statement. Christ is God, the Father is God, the Holy Spirit is God, and they are used interchangeably here. If Christ did not raise himself up, as he said he would, John 2.19, and if the Holy Spirit and the Father did not participate, then the preaching of Christ is senseless. That's what's being said in 15, uh, 1, 1 Corinthians 15.12-28. And if Christ... If they did not participate, then preaching of Christ is senseless. Faith in Christ is meaningless, and all who testify of Christ's resurrection are duped or liars. No one is resurrected and transformed or redeemed from sin. All who died believing in Christ went to annihilation, and we of all men are the most pitiable. In other words, if there is no triune Godhead involved in this, then that's all true too. What I just re- we are the most pathetic. If there's no triune God, we are pathetic. In other words, if the Elohim, the us, the us, when you read uh, Genesis 126, 3.22, when you read that, that is the Elohim, that is the us, the triunity of God. If the us is not fully engaged in the resurrection of Christ, if the us is not necessary for the resurrection of Christ, then Christ is not infinite. He is not God in the flesh. And if Christ is not God, then none will be resurrected. That is what 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 28 is saying. This is the first aspect of Christ's resurrection. So again, those of you who are amazing will remember last year that I said there are three aspects 
to the feast day of first fruits. There's actually more. I just picked two or three. I'm sorry. I'd have one A if I could. Triune God. The us. If that's not there, then first fruits is insignificant. And that is the case that Paul is making with the help of the Holy Spirit. Okay. So that would be the first aspect, if you will, of Christ's resurrection. That resurrection of man is cannot be disconnected from the resurrection of Christ. And that's because of that. So that's the first aspect. Second aspect is that Christ is the first fruits. Resurrection. Last year I identified the legal component of this statement. It's a contractual guarantee. It's signed in blood, if you will. It's an oath. It's a blood oath. Uh, it's, it's actually signed in blood. So, And it's presented during a judicial process in the throne room, the courtroom of heaven. That is what that's saying. The, this is a legal concept. In a courtroom, it's a judicial event. So because Christ, the infinite God himself, in the flesh is risen, and this again is the day we celebrate his uh, fulfilling this oath. So because Christ, the infinite God himself, is in the flesh is risen, with the three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that's infinity and infinity and infinity within the triune Godhead, the infinite God, participating, then our resurrections to life as God defines life are certain because of this legal document. So here it is tied together, the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of mankind. And here is the document that says that's true. Christ is the first fruits. Our resurrections to life, as God defines life, are certain because of those first two. Which is why each one is in his own order. Remember it said that. Each one in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, establishes the inevitability, the certainty, the assuredness of, sal- of, of resurrection. Afterwards comes those who are in Christ. So now you understand how he defines life. He defines life as those who have life through Christ. That's his definition of life. There are dead resurrected, but they are resurrected into dead. They stay dead as he defines dead. Just think about this for a second. The incredible power to resurrect, to resurrect the infinite Christ, because that's what we're doing. We're resurrecting an infinite Christ. I asked the question throughout my so-called career here. How much does he weigh? How, much, how big is he? What does it take 
to resurrect infinite in infinity. But the power to do that is not challenged, is beyond sufficient to resurrect mankind that are in Christ. Can you see that? If I establish that it requires the triune Godhead to resurrect Christ, and it does, then resurrecting human beings and animals is unchallenged by that power. I mean, that power is unchallenged by that. So then, that's the second aspect. The third aspect, you might remember, is when Jesus Christ delivers the kingdom to the Father. So this is the delivery, delivery of the kingdom. Now, immediately you know there are five facets of the kingdom of God. Which kingdom is this? You should immediately recognize which it is, I hope, or know which of the five it is at least. Jesus Christ, the third aspect, is when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. God the Son, the rightful king of the world, brings the kingdom to God the Father, who in conjunction with the hovering spirit, Genesis 1-2, and the light of life, Genesis 1-3, John 8-12. So I have God the Father, the hovering spirit, Genesis 1-2, the light of life, Genesis 1-3. Then they restore the world. So he delivers it, and then there's this restoration. The return, they return the earth and the heavens to the new heavens and new earth to its designed sinless glory. So that is what the delivery does. First he delivers it, and then the three that are one uh, make the restoration. And you might, I hope you remember after, and all that happens after the 1,000 years. So that is post-thousand years, which is a kingdom. So hopefully that gives you some idea of the chronology. He delivers the kingdom to the triune Godhead, to the Father. The Father's in the role here, if you wish to think of it that way, as a, as a uh, dramatic theodicy, as I want to call it. And then you receive that this process, again, is a legal process. It's being done as a court procedure. As a proceeding. But, and, and it happens after the thousand year of the Messiah. And, and he must reign that thousand years until all enemies are put under his feet. And the last enemy that will be destroyed, you remember we read it, is death. Why does he wait to the end to destroy death? You would think he would destroy it during the millennium, but that is not the case. That's Revelation 27 through 15 and Revelation chapter 21. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death, as Corinthians makes absolutely perfectly clear. Again, notice the triune nature of God on display in 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 28. It's marinated in the triunity of God. And that is why all of these things are said that are said under the foundation of the triune nature. The key to understanding this passage 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 28, is to recognize this inclusion of the triune Godhead. And that's not an accurate word to describe this, how Paul has rendered it. Inclusion doesn't work very well. Domination, I would say, is more apt. The triune Godhead dominates every aspect of 15, or 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 28. And therefore, when you see that, you know that that is what explains what is happening here. Okay? Got all of that? Because that was the introduction. Wow.
Let's see what time it is. I did really good. Okay. Now we return to Revelation chapter 5. So I'll get rid of all of this. Those are your three aspects. If those of you on the internet, you can go back and review all of that. We have no analog congregation except for at least two people that exist and one that's still up in the air. We're not sure. Those are, but you keep that in your mind as we go now forward. And we return to where we were in Revelation chapter 5. A few weeks back. 1 Corinthians 15 connects to chapter 5. This should be obvious in a minute. And Revelation chapter 5 is the underlayment for Revelation chapter 6. That's why I get the big money right there. Revelation chapter 6, if you remember, that's the four horses and their riders from a couple of weeks ago, lecture number 96. Revelation 5, actually Revelation 4 and 5 are what Revelation 6 is built on. So the intention of investigating the four horsemen is to search for the signs that expose the end of the age of the Gentiles, which began in 586 B.C. That is the beginning of the end of the age of the Gentiles. And the question that we brought up when we went through Revelation 6 is, when does it end? When does the age of the Gentiles end? So, that is why we did 1 Corinthians 15, to get us back here. What is the signs that expose the age, the end of the age of the Gentiles? Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem 586 B.C. That launched, if you will, this age. And we have Matthew 24, 4 through 8. I won't write that on the board. We have Mark 13, 5 through 8. And we have Luke 21, 8 through 11. Christ Jesus revealed to us the signs that will announce the beginning of the end. Of the age of the Gentiles. So I have the beginning of the end, which should be obvious that I don't have the signs of the end. I have the signs of the beginning of the end. The beginning of the end will not come immediately, Luke 21 9. It will not come immediately. That gives you the implication, I believe, that it will be stretched out. So we go in search of the end of the beginning of the end. That's the goal. When is the end of the beginning of the end of the age of the Gentiles, which began in 586 B.C.? Does that make perfect sense? No one nodded. Let me repeat that. When is the end of the beginning of the end? I know I have signs of the beginning of the end, but I want to know when the end of the beginning of the end is. Why do I want to know that? Because if I know when the ending, in, when I know the end of the beginning of the end, then I have a really good idea how much time is left. No one here got any of that, so don't feel bad if you're on the internet. 
And one of the ways we go about this is to have a basic comprehension of Revelation 4 and Revelation 5. Again, they are the underpinnings of Revelation 6. And I'm starting in Revelation 5 instead of starting in Revelation 4 to get to Revelation 6 in order to make it more confusing. I think I've done a wonderful job. So now let's, let's read Revelation 5. Again. No, we didn't read it before. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back. So what's your first question? Who is him that is sitting on the throne? And he has a scroll. Why does he have a scroll? Why is he sitting on the throne? Once again, we're in a courtroom. And I saw the right hand of him who sat on a throne. In the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a scroll. Sometimes it's, it's rendered a book written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look at it. So I wept. That's John the Apostle. So I wept because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders, who's the elders? you got to go back to Revelation 4. One of the welders, uh, welders, oh my goodness, maybe the elder was a welder. <sighs> One of the elders said to me, do not weep, behold. So this is a big deal now. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. Well, we think that's obvious. But it's not. This is why the behold is there. And John goes on. And I looked and behold, in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. What does that mean? It's a behold. Wish we had time. We don't. Let me check. Nope. Then he... Well, who's he? I got, I got a him who sits on the throne. Now I got a he. Then he came out and took the scroll out of the hand of him who sat on the throne. What is that verse? That's a triune verse. If you don't know it's a triune verse, then you will go into the ditch and we will never find you. As so many people do. So the lamb came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now, when he had taken the scroll, why does he take the scroll? When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a banjo. Nope. Each having a harp. A harp might be a banjo. Could be a special kind of banjo. And golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and you have been redeemed to us, to, and you have redeemed us to God by your blood. Does that sound like 1 Corinthians 15? It absolutely does. 
Out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, you have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Hopefully, you've attached Revelation 5 to the central point here, and that is that the Lamb has to take the book. And he's the only one that can take the book. He has to take the book out of the hand of him who sits on the throne. Him who sits on the throne is obviously infinite. How do I get a scroll out of the hand of an infinite being? I have to, how much does it weigh? How much power does it take? Obviously, I have co-infinity here. That is a triune condition again. John the Apostle wept because no one is worthy to take the scroll. Well, we know somebody is worthy to take the scroll. How come John is weeping? John has got to know that someone is worthy to take the scroll. Why does he weep? Why that statement there? We have to solve that. Will we solve it today? No. But behold, the Lamb, he came and took the book. The book, again, is a document that grants the kingdom. First Corinthians, I took it off the board. First Corinthians fifteen twenty four. Aha! The kingdom is delivered after the thousand years. It's, the first, it's a first fruits event. And this is obviously part of that event. The Lamb takes the kingdom, or the, the deed, if you will, to his property. He's taking his kingdom, the warranty deed. And that's why he takes the book. He's the only one that can take the book because he has to do two things. He has to possess it, the kingdom, and he has to deliver the kingdom. Who is worthy to do that? And that exp- starts to explain the behold. This is, as I said before, Matthew 6.10. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come. That's what this is. That is why that phrase is in our Lord's prayer. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So it has to be done on earth and it has to be done in heaven. That's a big deal to think that through. That he puts them together. His will has to be done in both. Your kingdom come. Christ is taking the kingdom, his kingdom. His property, and he will reign for 1,000 years. He'll put his enemies under his feet and destroy death. And after which he will, he will hand over and deliver the kingdom for restoration. And he will be part of that restoration. Infinity, infinity, infinity. The, the us took it off. Remember, it was here. And the restoration of the kingdom will bear tremendous similarity to Genesis 1.1. In process, the triune God will bring forth the new heavens and the new earth. As an aside, by the way, knowing the process of 1 Corinthians 15, 24 through 28 and Revelation 5 brings clarity to the watered, covered condition of Genesis 1, 2. And the Noadic covenant promise of Genesis 9, 11 through 15, which was, God said, I will never flood it again. I won't do it again. What connects the floods to the scroll or the book? Because they're connected. Feel free to figure that out whilst I continue. Take a break. There's no audience for me to gain in energy from. I look like I'm somebody's going to hold up a, rick, a liquor store here any minute. I went to a long, long time ago. I was a young kid, and I went to an auction here in Anchorage off a old Seward Highway. 
It was an old auction house there. It turned into a video thing. Now it's a real estate place, I guess. But in the middle of the auction, and I was just a young kid. I was 17, maybe. And I'm sorry, I can't hear you. You can't hear me? I can speak louder if you say so. Okay, I was 17 years old and I went to an auction house that was on the old Seward Highway as opposed to the new Seward Highway. And I went out there and I was going to buy something because you know at an auction house, especially when you're 17, you're going to get a great deal. Nobody there is going to cheat you. It's all perfect. Everybody's bidding against each other. There isn't the uh, the whole congregation that is there is not seated with people that actually work for the auction house. That never happens. But I'm 17, and I think this is a fair fight. And so I'm there, and he holds up a pistol. And he said, who give me $10 for the pistol? Well, I give you $10. Well, I got outbid. And one of the final things, he said, who give me $50? And no, nobody gave me $50. I think the last bid was 45 or something. And he, and he, he pleaded. He said, $50? Come on, folks. You can get across the street and hold up the liquor store and make more than that. And I never forgot it. So I've done the liquor store joke ever since then. That I stole from an auctioneer that tried to cheat me. The gun was probably worth $10. I was right. That's my great story. I bought a couch. I was bidding against this guy that worked for, the, for, for him. I, I wanted that gold couch really bad. And I, was, I didn't want to, I was going to get a good price. It finally bid up to about 100 bucks for the gold couch. Maybe 50 I don't remember what it was. I was pretty happy. I outbid that guy. Who? I defeated him. And the auctioneer said, who wants another one for the same money? We've got 200 of them. Look at that. I can actually do that. I haven't done that for 15. What has it been? How long have we been married? Oh, dear. I am a tiny little man now. I have a mirror. I, I turn it around. Where was I? Knowing the process of Corinthians 15, 24 through 28 and Revelation 5, that's going to help you with the noatic flood and why he says he's never going to flood it again. So work that out. Anywho, Revelation 5 is the taking of the book and it is the end of the beginning of the end. So the taking of the book is the end of the beginning of the end. Right now, I believe in history, we're inside of the beginning of the end. I asked last week, how long does the beginning of the end last? I think that we're really close to the begin or the end of the beginning of the end that began in 586 B.C. The taking of the book ends the beginning of the end and the end of the beginning. Does that make any sense at all? Yes, it does. Don't shake your head. If I have a beginning of the end, then I have to have the end of the beginning of the end, and I have to have the end of the end. Makes perfect sense. (laughs) I'm being mocked here. There's nobody here, and I'm still being mocked. So what I'm trying to say to you is the taking of the scroll by the Lamb from him who sits on the throne is the end of the beginning of the end. It's the end of the beginning of the end event is what it is. So the end of the beginning of the end has ended. The Lamb has taken the book because only he can take the book because you have to be infinite and you have to be God to take the book and he's God. So again, that's the behold. 
It is an identification of the true deity of Christ, which is over and over and everywhere in the Bible. Those who go out and say that Christ never declares himself, the Bible never says he's God, are the highest, most idiotic people that have ever become idiotic. The Lamb has taken the book because he is worthy, because he is God, and because he is the first fruits of the resurrection. He is the only resurrection and the life. He is the I am. Do you believe this? John 11:25, John 8:24. If you do, then you are going to be in Christ and you will be resurrected from death into life as he defines both. Death is interesting. The curse of death is for the sake of man. Genesis 3:17 through 19. It's for our sake that he reverses what he did in Genesis 2:7 where he had a body that he made out of dust. And he breathed his life, his, the existence, his consciousness, soul, breath of life, went into that body. And because of sin now, we're in a reversal condition. So the body will return to dust now. My body, your body, we will, unless we're trans, translated, which I hope is true today. I was hoping for today. It still happened. We're not on Hebrew time, though. But uh, the, our bodies will return to dust and the breath of the life, of the, I'm sorry, the breath of the spirit of the life will return to him who gave it to us, Ecclesiastes 12.7. And the reason that it is for our sake, one thing that it does, it ends sin in every man. It does, it ends suffering too. But it also causes us to remember our creator, Ecclesiastes 12.1, 12.6. Before the silver cord is loosed. And I know this is true. I've seen it happen. Do not be shocked by the uncountable number who cry out for salvation as death approaches. And we have that condition now. I am particularly, um, how do I put it? I'm immune compromised. And I have cardiovascular failure. I know what the percentages are if I end up with this COVID-19 and not good. I don't have to remember him while I am lying in that bed. I will. I will. But it, uh, you don't be surprised by the amount of people as death approached them who had an opportunity, had time. Either they were awaiting execution or they were awaiting the end of their life through disease or aging. There was no suddenness to their death. How many of those people remembered their creator before their soul returned to him? Just understand, salvation is alongside of physical death. He says so. Genesis 3, 17 through 19. It is for your sake. Okay, where was I? The sign of the end of the, end of the beginning of the end of the age of the Gentiles as opposed to the end of the beginning of the end of the age of the Gentile. It's not the same for those keeping scored. We get more information if we go to Daniel 12, specifically Daniel 12:4. But you, Daniel, he says, shut up the book. I'm sorry, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Is this the same end as the end of the end of the, never mind. Or is this a different end? How many ends do I have here? 
At the time of the end, many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Then I, Daniel, looked, and there stood two others, one on this riverbank, one on, and the other on the other riverbank. And one said to the man clothed in linen, how many have I got here? This is another math problem. I have three. One on that riverbank, one on this riverbank. Which river is it? And I have a man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river. And the man on that side of the riverbank says, says to the other man on the riverbank, or maybe he says to the man clothed in linen, how long shall the fulfillment of these astonishing, astonishing things, how long shall the fulfillment of these astonishing things, how long too? The questions that are within Daniel 12, 4 through 6 are a lecture series, a dozen lectures, if I were to take all of that on. Just that, that those two verses for today. Notice the time of the end, what the characteristics are. We have more characteristics. We have more pieces of information. At the time of the end, many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Now, there's tremendous debate over this. It goes back hundreds of years. I've read as many opinions as I can, but obviously questions abound here. Who are the many that are going to race? And the word is literally race. Who are the many who will race? How many is many? What knowledge is increasing? What end is this? Is it the end of the age of the Gentiles or is it the end of the tribulation? Them's the choices, I think. You pick. In other words, is Daniel 4 attached to the wise that shine as the bright brightness of the firmament? That's Daniel 12.3. Is Daniel 4 through 6 attached to the wise or is Daniel 2.4, I'm sorry, Daniel 4 through 6 attached to the wicked of Daniel 12.10. There's another choice. That helps you figure out who's running to and from and whose knowledge is increasing. Daniel 12.10 says, None of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. Understand what? The book of Daniel. So we have this run to and fro, race to and fro. And I'm going to submit that that carries the implication of frenzied, frenzied panic. They are panicking. There's alarm. Does that sound like the wise? No. The wise should be what? The wise are composed. They're calm. They're at peace. So I'm saying this applies to Daniel 12.10. The wicked shall not understand. The wise understand the book of Daniel. The wicked never understand. Thus I submit it is those who never understand that are racing to and fro. Now, what does that mean? Now, you have seen, I know you have, and so have I. And there's strong cases to be made. So let me just throw some of them out. The racing has been assigned to locomotion, the speed at which mankind can travel. And therefore, if he can travel quickly, then that allows him to communicate. I see that. It gets worse here in a minute, though. So he can travel quickly. And therefore, he can meet many people. That obviously connects to the knowledge shall be increased because the more opportunity I have, that's one of the purposes of the Tower of Babel was to separate everybody and make it difficult to reach everybody so that you could not increase your knowledge. You couldn't compare. You couldn't collaborate. We have translation devices now that have ended the Tower of Babel. That's an incredible sign for the end of the beginning of the end. So, both an explosion in scientific knowledge, 
and the accumulation of information is going to occur at the end of the beginning. Mankind cannot comprehend the book of Daniel, but can manipulate the physical structures of the creation. In my lifetime, and I'm going to cover this in a second, it's astonishing what mankind has been able to do. Unprecedented uh, post-flood. And we should see this situation as it has come to be at the time of the end. That's what the book of Daniel said. I submit that the defining moment of mankind getting, getting knowledge that is extraordinary, the acceleration of, of mankind's knowledge occurred, the, the defining moment, in my opinion, this is my opinion, was July the 16th, 1945. That's when something special really happened. That was the detonation of a nuclear device. That is the Manhattan Project. The Manhattan Project was essentially a human, if you wish to think of it this way, an artificial nuclear reaction, a human-sourced nuclear reaction. And there were some extraordinary men involved in that. Ernest Rutherford, Enrico Fermi, J. Robert Oppenheimer. What I'm talking about is nuclear fission. Nuclear fission means the splitting of an atom. They, get, they learned how to split an atom by hitting it with a neutron. And when they split the atom, those two, those two pieces released atoms. I'm sorry, neutrons. And those two neutrons hit atoms, which released neutrons. And you can see that I have what's called eventually critical mass. I have to contain those neutrons, and they came up with a system to keep the neutrons in a, contain, in a confined spot so that there was a tremendous amount of reaction here, which you would know as chain reaction, right? The splitting of atoms. Mankind was able to accomplish that. Those three men, Oppenheimer, of course, turned it into a weapon. Fermi and Rutherford saw it as a source of power, a nuclear reactor. So we had nuclear fission, the splitting of atoms, releasing the energy in, a, in atomic structures. And the mathematics of this is uh, extraordinary, and I hope that uh, I can get everybody to do the math. I'm actually somewhat serious. Eventually, nuclear fission led to nuclear fusion. Nuclear fusion is the fusion of hydrogen isotopes. Obvious question, why do I want to use hydrogen isotopes? What is a hydrogen isotope? How do I make a hydrogen isotope? Somebody figured out we can't just use hydrogen. We have to have hydrogen isotopes. And you've heard me discuss, albeit very slightly shallowly, the, the strong nuclear force. Because there is a natural repulsion that exists at the atomic level. Think of the strong nuclear force as the inherent stability. In other words... Atoms resist being split. They resist being fused. And so you have to overcome that strong nuclear force that is inside the creation. The Manhattan Project was the stepping stone. I'm sure you know, all know this. The, the discovery, the extraordinary, to know the thermal increases necessary to make it possible to fuse combined nuclei together. That's what the Manhattan Project eventually led to. And when you get enough heat, when the natural pulsion of atoms is overcome and fusion occurs, then I have plasma. 
Mankind has the capability in my lifetime to arrange three processes, a chemical process, a fission process, and a fusion process, and put them in a sequence. And you're going to recognize that as a thermonuclear hydrogen bomb. And if you've ever taken the time to look at the films of what a hydrogen bomb looks like compared to an atomic bomb, it is unbelievable. Have you ever asked, why, it is a hy- why is it that a hydrogen bomb, why it's a hydrogen bomb, why, and not a uranium-235 or plutonium-239 bomb, but it's hydrogen? Hydrogen is a component of water. You wouldn't think I could use that to make a bomb. But that tells you what kind of energy is inside of atomic structures. Natural hydrogen has one electron orbiting around the proton. I talk about it all the time. If I made the hydrogen... Uh, nucleus the size of a cue ball, then the electron would be five miles away. So it's mostly empty space. But the fact that hydrogen has one electron orbiting around a proton, that is why it's a hydrogen bomb. Because I can make hydrogen isotopes, and they have extra neutrons in the nucleus, allowing for a large amount of energy to be released when these two isotopes are fused together to form helium because then I have hydrogen to helium but I have this extraneous particles that are released so that's energy released and now I can determine how much energy is there what formula do I use that's right I use this formula energy is equal to mass and light there's a relationship there but hydrogen to helium is something quite special and this is where the sun comes into the picture. The sun is this huge, glowing, thermonuclear hydrogen to helium device up in the sky that is probably affecting the weather. Or it could be a can of hairspray. Or cow farts. You decide. Now, again, in my lifetime, the world solved. I mean, mankind has this. A hydrogen bomb has thousands of them, and they put them on warheads of missiles because it's so light. Do you know how much mass it takes to completely destroy miles and miles and millions and millions of people? It takes about 20 pounds. And the energy that is taken out of that 20 pounds causes that incredible explosion. That's, a, that's an understanding of the micro level that, you, that I can't even explain. But in my lifetime, the world is... Now, today, is racing to solve, to harness the human immune system. The coronavirus, I can barely say it, 19, has energized the world's foremost medical research institution. And to the surprise of absolutely no one, who's in the lead? That's right, Israel. Yay, Israel. You see, antigens are substances that enter the body. COVID-19 has antigens. And, the, and, and antigens are proteins that are on the surface of a, uh, a pathogen. And when that antigen and that pathogen come into my body, I hope, who comes to my rescue? That's right, antibodies. Antibodies are naturally produced to fight antigens. And that's why the current testing systems that you're reading about are being produced are designed to detect antigens or they're designed to detect antibodies. Because if you have either one, then you have COVID-19. And Israel has developed something they call PLX cells. And PLX cells are placenta-based cell therapy. 
COVID-19, as I know, causes acute pulmonary respiratory uh, failure. That's a redundancy. It also causes inflammation complications, especially in the cardiovascular system. Oops, bad news for Steve. Also, uh, along with that is renal uh, dysfunction, kidney failure. And the Israeli discovery is to produce immunomodulatory cells. Say that five times. That will activate our own immune response, our own immune regulatory T cells. So that's what's happening in the world today. They are going to solve what? They have a hydrogen bomb to kill everybody with. And they're going to solve immune response. And if they can solve immune response, they'll not only cure all the diseases, they'll also stop Genesis 3, 17 through 19, death for your sake. Sign of Noah, sign of Lot. Regular t- t- regulatory T cells uh, have to be attenuated because if they get overactivated, then the immune system uh, pneumonia becomes fatal. So you have to not only get the immune the T cells to initiate, but you can't let them overactivate. And these PLX treatments have shown, it's shown themselves to be effective. The results to, uh, res- with respect to critical patients right now is astonishing. It's excellent. They're taking people that are intubated on the brink of death that have been in comas, and they are saving them. How far do we go with this? Consider the knowledge that mankind is rushing to collect immunomodulation, thermonuclear physics. Both are centered into what? Into the very smallest pieces. I have biological, I have microbiology, and I have microphysics or quantum physics, quantum particles. And knowledge is increasing at a frantic, explosive pace. They are running to and fro. And ultimately, what are they searching for? Well, I gave it away. What will they eventually search for? What's the last enemy that will be destroyed? Death. And they are searching for a way to extend death. You would think, oh, wait a minute. They don't want to extend death. Well, what do we have? If you do not have Christ, then you have death. And they want to extend how they define, how God defines death, so that it continues. They want to be without Christ for as long as they can be. Will he allow that? That's the last enemy. That's what they're searching for. Who is the ultimate thermonuclear weapon? He made the sun. How, uh, I mean, my goodness, he definitely has the skills. He understands the system, if it in fact is a hydrogen to helium system. I haven't had the opportunity yet to get to the sun and take a sample of it. Uh, but I think the, the, the understanding is probably sound. But who, who am I? But he is the ultimate thermonuclear weapon, Revelation 19, 17 through 21, 2 Thessalonians 2, 8 through 10. And he is the only solution to death as he defines it. He is the one who defeats the last enemy. 
He is the solution to the last enemy. That is who he is. 1 Corinthians 15, 26. And on that note, there is your typical Easter sermon. Probably every church in the country has discussed 1 Corinthians and Daniel and thermonuclear devices.